Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 162 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we chat with Derek Haynes, the chocolate botanist, all about busting garden myths and untruths. The plant profile is on monkey balls, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with the last word, on Bears and Blueberries by Christy Page at the Food Gardening Network. This episode, we're joined by Derek Haynes. He is the chocolate botanist and formerly known as the crazy botanist. Welcome, Derek. Hello, I am doing phenomenal. Thank you for having me here. How are you? Great. I am... So excited to be talking about garden myth busting with you and about your mission in getting good and true, and we can say valid is maybe another good word for it, and proven information out there about gardening out into the universe. Oh, that is a great word. We need truth. We need validity. We need realistic information. So that way people can have realistic expectations and then get realistic results. Mm-hmm. That's one of my biggest pet peeves, Derek, is just starting off people the wrong way and then they give up on plants or growing altogether. Like, you know, they just label themselves as having a black thumb, which we know is ridiculous. It is. It is super ridiculous. And I, I try to often switch that commentary, especially when I'm dealing with black and brown people, to the ideation or the notion that black thumbs, especially mm-hmm. in slave trade, really read to the growth of the country and the nation. So when it comes to any of you saying, you know, black thumb, black thumb, black thumb, there's the historical part, the historical ethnobotanical part that enslaved people were physically black thumbs and they made things grow. But then there's the other notion that when you learn how to, or when you experience killing a plant, that experience teaches you how to then keep that plant alive in the future. Absolutely. I think the more plants you kill, the more you learn, right? Exactamundo. That's, I think, so true of so many professional horticulturists will tell you they've killed more plants than anybody. Um, And it's all about the experience and the experiments. And I love what you're saying about the phrase black thumb, which is, you know, not the most culturally sensitive phrase out there Mm -hmm. and making it sound as if it's a negative thing. And many of those who were brought over into slavery to grow for plantations and farms here were because they were skilled growers. That was their whole, the whole point is because they had those growing skills. Exactly. And I, I put that spin on it to make it positive because again, a lot of people have really herbal tendencies, right? And I tell people, 
for my previous work, my previous place of employment, I've killed like 2 million plants. We did it on purpose, but we grew them to kill them. So when you, a home gardener, or even a, a prolific farmer with 70 million acres, when you're growing plants and, and they die, maybe it was something you did or maybe just something just randomly happened. But either way, we can learn from that experience and keep growing. So on the Garden DC podcast, we like to ask our guests, were they born with chlorophyll in their veins? So did you start off as a, a baby gardener or did that come later in life? Oh, yes. When I came out of my mama's womb, I was very green. The doctors of New Bern, North Carolina really uh, freaked out a little bit. But um, on the real, I have been infatuated with plants forever. I can remember my um, childish attempts, I'll say, at trying to grow plants um, in Colonial Trailer Park, for those of you representing Craven County in New Bern, um, <laughs> in College Park, trying to grow a, a peach tree. And I just knew if I just took the, peat out of, the pit out of that peach, I would be able to get the great peach tree that I was going to get randomly behind that apartment never worked. But um, I have always had a fascination for them. And as I started growing, and hence where I, you know, I try to be people's botanical motivator, I started learning like, okay, why did I fail? Why didn't I get pumpkins and I just got pumpkin vines? Why did all of my plants die? Well, was it the squirrels? Was it the birds? Was it something I did? And through a lot of trial and a lot of error, I've gotten to the place I am. So yeah, I definitely chlorophyll born, born and raised. <laughs> and I love that you, at even a young age, knew that a peach pit would be making a peach tree. Because I think so many of our young people, and I'm not just going to say young people, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to say that, but even some of our older people do not equate a seed with the plant. They don't. And I think I was a different child. I mean, I know I was a different child. I can remember reading science books in elementary school on the blue-footed boobies and capybaras and how plants grow and other stuff. I've just always been a science geek. So to know that this is how plants grow or this is how this grows, especially in the era before YouTube where you could get a video that can spoon feed you, right? Or you could quickly... Google and you can find, you know, maybe a Wikipedia page. I think Wikipedia was just really starting um, when I was in middle school. We, I, I didn't have all that information. So I just would have to do a lot of reading and a lot of research and, and all that jazz. So it's definitely important if you don't know how your food is grown and you are a person that's eating your food, just, just take anything you eat and say, well, how is this produced? Like, how is this corn? produced? What does it look like on the plant? What do the seeds look like? Blah, 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 blah. Same with your apples. Same with the pears we talked about or peaches. Any of these fruit, look at how they look. Kiwi. I know you all are knowledgeable listening to this because you know, Kathy, you are a horticultural genius. Okay. When it comes to kiwi, I was like a couple of years ago, years old when I learned kiwi grew on vines. I don't know what I thought they grew on, but I never questioned it. I eat kiwi every so often. And I went to Edible Landscape in Virginia with some friends um, and seen them growing on vines and learned that I could grow kiwi here in, in Zone 7 in North Carolina. So I, a whole plant biologist, am still learning what things look like before they come to me in a store. 
So let's just keep doing that together. I think it's a lifetime of discovery out there. There are so many plants that we haven't seen in situ, like in their growing situation. We've only seen them like in a tropical greenhouse. And you're like, oh, that's where chocolate comes from. Because I remember my first trip to St. Lucia and seeing some of the allspice bushes in the tree and making that connection. And I was like, oh, I thought allspice literally was all spices. (laughs) (laughs) Still not an actual allspice nut you know, that you actually rendered the spice from. You know, I used to think the same thing. I think it's just the name is so subjective that you don't think like, no, this is just the name of it. That's where common names can sometimes be our detriment because they can give us a a bad preconception of, not necessarily bad, a incorrect connotation or conception of what these plants really are. That's so true, because I was just explaining to somebody yesterday what uh, cucamelon, mouse melon, Mexican sour gherkin, all those misnomers <laughs> for the for the same little baby cucumber plant. Um, but I was like, well, it's a vine, it's a cucumber, but it tastes like this. <laughs> but because of all the common names are just, you know, totally misleading. They really can be. So you were talking about your science geek youth. Yes. And that led you to a degree, I think, in botany or ethnobotany or both degrees. So I have a degree in plant biology, botany. Um, the ethnobotany program, unfortunately, didn't really take root until I was finishing my degree program, which is depressing because I pretty much took a lot of courses to be considered an ethnobotanist. It is my passion and my my values, but it's not on my degree. But I just be, I just tell people like I'm an ethnobotanist. Is what I do. I, that that was my um, my passion. And did that lead you to work straight out of school in that field? Let's see. So my educational history from North Carolina State was a little um, much like a a series of movies. There was action and drama, a lot of crying, and occasionally a musical. (laughs) (laughs) So during my academic career, I had to work full-time to support myself. So I worked at uh, Fast Food and Papa John's. Um, I had to take a big academic break where I just gave up on education, to be honest, because I was like, I'm never going to get this degree. The, The university life is hard for those of us who do have to work. So, and especially... Those of us who have to work and trying to explore, understand, find myself, whatever you want to use in my early 20s. So I took a big break, um, did a bunch of different jobs, not a bunch, a couple of different gigs and jobs, worked with people with uh, exceptionality. So I was like a mentor, helping them with their goals, taking a couple of young adults out to the mall and stuff like that who may have had um, some form of autism or a physical impairment, things of that nature. Before I ended up landing the gig I was formerly at, Medicago USA, where I um, worked there for almost 10 years. And then while there, finished my degree program because I had like four credits left. Um, And I also took some classes at Durham Tech. So my academic history is a little not as straightforward as some other people, but I still got the job done. Yeah, I think that's very common that you know, take breaks or change, you know, your directions or even reevaluate sometimes. So, but basically you're in the 
Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina area, correct? Yes, I'm in Durham. I'm in Durham, North Carolina. I know a lot of people, you know, sidebar. I know <laughs> we didn't ask me for a sidebar, but I'm going to do it while I'm here. You edit it out if you want to. When it comes to non-North Carolinians saying Raleigh, Durham, they are two cities in two separate counties. And I don't know exactly when, I think because they're part of the triangle, they they all got lumped together. But us North Carolinians want y'all to know I'm either in Raleigh or Durham. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I feel you on that because if, if I say I'm from Maryland, everybody thinks I'm in Baltimore. And I'm like, that's the other end of the state or Annapolis. Yeah, or they just say DMV. And it's like, no, like yes. there's, they're all together. <laughs> and those are states. And it's like, they're all together. Yes, we kind of say, oh, that general area. But that, that there can be vastly different. Danville, D.C., and Maryland in general is – so lot far apart, but I digress. Yes, I am in Durham, North Carolina. <laughs> um, when I first moved here, I was in Raleigh for nearly 10 years, I think, um, eight to 10 years before moving to Durham. So now I'm in Durham near Chapel Hill. So I get I get a lot of the best of the both worlds. I can drive everywhere. Um, I get to be able to see the Botanical Gardens at the UNC campus, the North Carolina Botanical Gardens. I'm a part of the foundation board for that garden. And um, again, I get to experience a lot of cool if I want to, because I don't really go out and do stuff. Mm-hmm. If I want to, I could experience a lot of cool things in the area and outside of the triangle. Well, I was going to ask um, for Durham, you're, you said you're zone seven. And what is your soil and what is your home garden like? What do you like to grow at home? So I live in an apartment. I'm on the second floor. So my soil is pretty much a mix of soils I have had over the years because um, I will recycle or renew my soil that I use in my urban garden outside. So it's core, it's peat, it's composts and mushroom composts and mycorrhizals and slow releases and earthworms and everything else. Um, I love growing. And then there's also my indoor garden because I have between indoor and outdoor like 500 plants. The outdoor, I grow a bunch of herbs. I love mints. I love all the different mint cultivars that are out there. Like, if you're listening to this and you're like, I have this kooky mint cultivar that Derek's probably never heard of before, mail it to me. I don't care what it is. (laughs) Send me a clipping, please. Um, I just found berries and cream mint, and it smells so delicious. So I do that. Um, I, I love flowers. I am a flower man, so I did sunflowers this year because I wanted to be able to come home and have the sunflowers smiling at me. Um, and I do also various lilies and Asiatic lilies, day lilies. Uh, what else is out there? I have a couple of roses, some mullein. Um, I had pitcher plants, but I can't keep them alive recently for some reason. Some celosias. I said mint already. Some oregano, basil, just random slew of random plants. I'm trying to get ginger growing. And then indoors, a bunch of aeroids. So philodendrons, monasteras, um, some wandering dudes, a bunch of random snake plants and cacti. And I'm making sure I don't forget anybody because if you forget naming a plant when you're talking like this, (laughs) one of them will die. And Mm -hmm. my ZZs and all the Uh other plants that I didn't name that I love because I can't see anything else. But yes, I have a bunch of plants in here. Sounds like a great mix and a lot of chlorophyll. A lot of chlorophyll. (laughs) So let's turn to our topic of the episode, which is garden myth busting. 
And maybe we'll start off with um, that you do most of this education, or I will call it re-education, mm -hmm. um, using your social media accounts, and people can follow you on The Chocolate Botanist. It's usually all one word, correct? No spaces correct. or dashes or anything in between. That's correct. Unless it's on Facebook, then you can put, you know, spaces when you're mm -hmm. searching. Yes. So, and you're uh, posting, I would think, several times a week now? Several times a day sometimes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's a bit to catch up on, but you can see some of Derek's past posts and things that we'll be talking about now in our discussion. But maybe let's start off with what was the first thing you watched online that you can recall that you were just like, oh, no. Like, this has to be addressed. I cannot let this just slide. You know, I've seen, I guess I should start off with, I've been on social media since social media has been social media. So when I started seeing a lot of these five-minute hacks, these, these life hacks, these plant hack, whatever you want to call them pages, and they would bury like the bloom of a rose and then they magically got the whole plant. Mm -hmm. That stuff like that I would see over the last, you know, decade or so. I'm like, eh, that, that's, that's very false, but it's okay. Um, but recently, and it, it was a very specific series of things that happened. I was trying to interact with a young lady who was talking about alkaline water and alkaline juices. And she said, alkaline water is legitimate, is not legitimate, but alkaline juices are. And I was like, yeah, neither of those are, are legitimate. And then she blocked me. And I was a little frustrated because I'm like, I'm being respectful. We're having a conversation. You yourself are saying something that people don't agree with. And then when I say something you don't agree with, you block me. I found out I was being laid off, I think within that same month. Um, and I had had a sister dear sister of mine who had been telling me like, when you see this stuff, maybe you should give a botanical review because of all the people that are really on social media, you're one of the few legitimate plant biologists, like degree. Maybe you should do that. And I was like, I don't know. Da, 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 da. And I seen those videos around that time, Kathy. And I said, you know what? I am not going to let this lie anymore. If I am frustrated the world will be frustrated, and that frustration is going to bring me joy and laughter in addition to help us all learn something. So I feel like one of the videos I talked about was like alkaline fruit, the notion that certain fruit can make your, your body, your system alkaline, and that alkalinity reduces all types of diseases versus the acidic, reed, not natural fruits that are out there. And this is a, a ideation that is mostly prevalent in the black communities, the black and brown communities, where certain health group uh, specialists, that's the word I'm going to use and not the other word, have basically lied to people about the power of plants. So I started off talking about that and then seedless plants are not GMO. And then it went into what some of our quote unquote favorite, very sarcastic favorite, um, plant pages that will show in a creative way false explanations of these different plant hacks. So I put bananas in the water, I sprinkle oats and, and random junk into my soil, and it makes the plants grow. And this specific person I'm referencing, all of us could guess who we're talking about, makes some great content that looks beautiful. He can catch the people's attention, but he's feeding them a bunch of malarkey. 
You know, I often want to call him Oscar Meyer because <laughs> all he gives the people is baloney. So why do you think people listen to these? Is it just the enthusiasm level that they sound like they know what they're talking about? And why are people giving them any credence? You know, one thing that is out there, I think it's called the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect or something like that, where people think they're smarter than they actually are. Some people <laughs> do. And and this is not to be offensive because I've had it happen to me too. Like I've, I've been a subject to it, but we we think that we know all things. We think that we have an understanding and some people misunderstand or misrepresent how deep botanical, horticultural, agricultural knowledge really is. So when somebody comes up and they say to them, hey, these plants were made in a lab and it's because I said so. And they say with confidence and they exude that confidence. Now that person is a trusted source. That person is giving you nothing. If they do give you anything, it's a bunch of shady sources. And now you are believing what they're saying. You're going to believe that the coffee grounds will magically help your plants immediately. You'll believe the eggshells just out of the oven, sterilized and ground down, will spread over your plants, will just magically fill them full of calcium. And we don't think about any calcium overdosing in plants. We don't think about that. We don't think about that nutrition and the food well takes time. And unless you help it out, there's a timeline attached to that. There's a fuse attached to that. And so people don't know that they don't know what this person is talking about. And they don't know that this person has no earthly clue what they're talking about. Because again, they're, they're speaking with confidence. Mm -hmm. So that person has to be able to help me. And I have an aunt who listens to that person who has those explanations that are very creative. And she will tell me all of his stuff. My aunt who knows that I am a plant biologist, my aunt who calls me and will ask me questions about her plants, she will see these Pinterest pirates and these other <laughs> people, and she will say, well, they say it X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, you didn't consider 40 other things that they didn't tell you to consider because it's not attractive. It's not attractive to think about well, I did this beautiful thing in my yard because I'm in California, but you people that actually have a winter sucks for you. That's not attractive. <laughs> so that those are the reasons. It's not necessarily attractive. People speak with confidence and they confidently lie to folks. And people don't have a knowledge that, hey, I don't really know anything about this. So I really shouldn't even take what this person's saying at face value unless I speak to a legitimate either expert or I study myself legitimately. And I can see why... People, you know, they sound so easy, sound so confident. It sounds like this is the correct way to do it. So I can see how people get caught up in some of the snake oil type, um, you know, easy, quick fixes for plants. Like oh, turn a brown leaf to green overnight, mm -hmm. which, you know, unless you have spray paint, how are you going to do that? Witchcraft. But um, the part of it I usually question is the motivation of the person posting this incorrect information. Like, mm. do you think in your experience that they're just looking for high numbers of viewers so they can get their viewer count and their influencer numbers up or are they purposely putting out evil information? There are, there are some people who are looking for that influence, like not even just to be an influencer, but that influence of, I have the numbers. I have millions of, so one person I keep slightly referencing when I use two words together has 
almost 6 million viewers on Instagram. And I'm sure through all of their platforms, they probably have close to 10 million people who will watch their content and interact with it, who will buy one of their two books, if not both of them, who they can say this person, who they can say, I have all these people who listen to me. And then what does that lead to? What does that do? What does that mean? That ends up meaning that if I want to do brand deals or if I want to say something is legitimate, something isn't, I have my community who's behind me, even though I'm feeding them a bunch of, of, of frankly, cow manure, mm-hmm. they are taking it like it's a Big Mac or whatever food, insert whatever food you love. I just randomly picked Big Mac. They're taking it as a Big Mac and saying, ooh, so delicious. So that person gets that influence and that influence can lead to power. It may not be nothing political, right? It may not be nothing where they can, you know, go out and and get a house, you know, for free or get an honorary doctorate, but they could have TED Talks. They could get called to universities or, or really um, schools. One person I keep referencing has went to schools talking to children about <laughs> how to grow plants. Mm-hmm. And this person has no and no knowledge. And again, with that, especially with certain numbers or certain platforms, you also get that monetization. So now you can just make your living off of feeding people lies. And when you have books and other things you're doing and people are paying you to come and speak, you, you're getting a lot more than just those numbers. But to the very basics of it, you are right. There are a lot of people who will jump into the plant community and this is where we have to be wary. They will jump into the plant community. They will buy, you know, maybe 30, 40 plants, 100 plants, put them in beautiful pots. They take pictures of them. You'll never see this plant again. If you ask them about the plant that you've seen the first two weeks of their account, you will never see that plant because it's most likely dead. But they will show you all these beautiful pictures. Nothing's ever ugly. Nothing's ever dead. No yellow leaves ever. Yeah, I'm a real believer in real social media pictures like you were going to see the weeds in my garden in my pictures of my and where i'm visiting um and i very much suspect when things are too perfect and you know too many blooms on one plant or just too photoshopped you know those are huge clues to me but i'm going to swerve this conversation a little bit derek to see Mm -hmm. or if you are old enough to remember jerry baker and he named himself america's master gardener are you familiar with him at all? Oh, I am not familiar. I was like, are you talking about Tammy Faye's husband? But that's not his name. <laughs> kind of the same era. So in the 80s and 90s, maybe even back as far as the 70s. This face looks familiar. I still see some of his books at used bookstores and places, and I'm amazed that he sold so many books. And he was carried, Derek, on PBS stations across the country during their begging weeks. They would bring Jerry Baker in, and he would show these amazing things he did with plants and all these little recipes and tricks he had. Um, And those of us who are like hardcore gardeners would be like, please don't bring in the Jerry Baker special again. (laughs) And he would do a great job of selling books and uh, getting money raised for those local PBS stations. So they were never questioned the scientific validity of some of the things he was telling them. Mm. That it's amazing because people can be great marketers, Mm -hmm. but they don't have to be botanical experts. Because Mm -hmm. if you're a great enough marketer, you can convince people 
that your BS is real. You can convince them that the thing that's obviously fool's gold, it's obviously just copper painted gold, is legitimate. And then I'll just go to the bank and fuss the bank down that, hey, this is real gold. So that is horrible. Yeah, and Jerry, if you ever come across one of his books, you'll know, um, or his videos. I think he sold video series or DVDs. But one of the things that sticks out for me that he would always claim, and this works, it just wouldn't be something I would use, is he was a big one for getting a carton of cigarettes, soaking the cigarettes in something, and using that to spray the garden. (laughs) So it was basically a lot of use of nicotine. And that was like shocking to me the first time I saw him advocate for that. I have heard that from somebody else, a dear friend of mine I used to work with. And because I used to, the job I used to do, we worked with tobacco. That was our main thing, but it wasn't the American tobacco. It was an Australian species. Mm-hmm. I used a a concoction, I'll say, trying to also use the nicotine in those plants to or in those tobacco plants to protect my other plants. And I killed a lot of plants. So I didn't even have Jerry Baker. I just after round and found out and those lands were dead, dead as a doornail. So we definitely have to be careful with who we're getting advice from. Yeah. I think part of why he was using the nicotine was to kill like a bunch of the tomato pests or things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like cringing the whole time knowing to you know, tobacco mosaic virus and other things that could be caused by it. It was just insane. His other favorites that I remember he would like to use anything that came from your medicine cabinet uh, like baby shampoo, castor oil, mouthwash. Those were all big remedies for him in the garden. <laughs> this is laughable, but it's sad because I'm like, there are people who will probably love this. They did it. Their plants died. And then they said, I did everything wrong and they never tried again. And that's really sad. Yeah. I mean, he was just all about the DIY tonics and that you would just go to your own kitchen and mix up your own solution. Um, And of course, this was an era that people had no compunction about using chemicals bought at the store either. Sad. But his were, I guess, quote unquote, natural because they were coming from kitchen products, right? Your, your castor oil or your mouthwash. So let's talk about the use of the word nat- natural in some of those garden myths that are being purported online as well. Um, so people use natural in combination with organic, mm-hmm. but sometimes they're using it in just the weirdest ways to me. What do you think, Derek? So I think there's a lot of people who use words in general, Kathy, in the weirdest ways. And I think the the biggest thing for us to know is that words have meaning, right? Mm. So when we're talking in a vernacular sense, that's one thing. Like bad can mean good, you know, fat with a pH can mean phenomenal, right? Um, And all the other terms, I'm I'm using older dated terms versus the terms now of like pushing P, you're doing great, you're doing phenomenal, um, and all the other terms that young folks use. But when it comes to like a scientific practice and when we're growing plants, we are in fact doing a scientific practice, whether we're doing it to relax or to feed ourselves or whatever, we're doing that. These words have a meaning for a reason. So natural is literally as found in nature. Unless you can show me a mouthwash tree, you won't see that in nature. Um, And even when it comes to organic Organic and genetically modified are not necessarily exclusive of each other. And that's one thing that some people just 
can't get because they're like, well, organic just means natural. And it's like, well, that that's not it. Like even sweet potatoes for the last 8,000 years, any sweet potato you can get anywhere has been genetically modified in nature. Like it happened naturally. That process is frankly natural because it happened there, but we make it happen in certain situations. It's a long conversation to go into, but words have meaning and we have to respect those meanings. Mm -hmm. So that way we don't become manipulated, frankly, by folks who choose to renew the word's intent. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just that the consumer or the layperson or the non-gardener or even the beginning gardener gets confused. You know, the term inorganic or non-organic versus organic is used to mean living or a dead material, but it can also mean clean or chemical free. Mm -hmm. So that makes it really confusing for some of the people and they could take advantage of some of that. And even when it comes to chemical free, mm -hmm. all of us are made of chemicals. The world is made of chemicals. So to be chemical free, it's like, I wish we could say the chemicals you don't like most likely are not in this. Like they, there's a, a series of videos that'll be like, here's how to make your own fertilizer naturally with no chemicals. And they'll start with water, which is a chemical. They'll add some type of plant, which again is broken down to its base is a series of chemicals. Like chemicals are everywhere. They're not, they're not bad. And I think even on a deeper sense, people fall into those traps, Kathy, because they, they, the words have fear and meaning. So when somebody says chemicals, they say it like they're an evil villain in a, in a Looney Tunes, Merry Melody, Silly Symphonies cartoon. So I have these chemicals over here and I'll get you, <laughs> Penelope Pitstop. And and they think that that is Penelope Pitstop for the younger folks. You really look it up. She had seven little people that used to follow her around. Look up Racky Races. I love cartoons. So when you look deeper into it, these people have a fear of words and those that fear that uh, that preconception that these things are bad because chemicals have to be bad. It is just limiting. It limits us so bad. So I, I just hope we can all get confidence and freedom from that. Yeah. I mean, we're made of chemicals. We're breathing in chemicals. We're eating chemicals, but it's where the chemicals are coming from that people are concerned. Is that lab created or quote unquote, again, natural? Facts. So let's talk about some of the myths that you've been busting lately. Um, so I think one of the ones I, I saw that you were working on is fungus gnats, which are, you know, annoying. They're not going to kill too much, but <laughs> mm -hmm. nobody loves having fungus gnats flitting around their house and getting up in their eyes or their computers when they're trying to work. Um, so People are giving tons of different ways of combating fungus gnats online. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. When it comes to these <laughs> fungus gnats, I get the issue. You have your friends over, your family over, maybe a hot date. Mm -hmm. You're cooking food. You could be by yourself trying to eat food. And there's some little beggar buzzing around in your face and trying to be on you. And it could be a fungus gnat, it could be a fruit fly. It's some type of little flying thing that is just bothering the bejesus out of you. There are so many people who will tell you to spread cinnamon on everything. I've tried that before. I ended up with fungus gnats and dead plants because my plants ended up getting a fungus 
a mildew that kind of overtook the soil, killed the plants. The thing I tell people is Bacillus thuringiensis, you get it in your mosquito dunks or your mosquito bits, a greenhouse. This is again where you find the experts. A greenhouse I went to, I go to to get plants, Gunter's Greenhouse in Durham. They will tell me, or they have told me, you get a heaping tablespoon for every gallon of water of mosquito dunk or mosquito bit. It's a thing you can get in Amazon, your Home Depot, your Lowe's, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you put it in your water. It has to be chlorine-free or the chlorine has to evaporate it out or warm or something like that. Bingo bongo, you pour it on the plants. You need like the top inch or two of the soil wet because that's where the gnats typically have their, their living situation in the top two inches of the soil. Again, an expert who's looked into the entomology and the living habitat of the gnats. And boom, you do that for a week or two, you interrupt the life cycle, they die. Mm -hmm. It's it's easy. It's foolproof. It's simple. You're already going to water your plants eventually anyway. You can do it as you water the plants. Boom. You can, you can even water the plants all the way through with it. Some people sprinkle the BT on the top or the um, you can get like just straight up Bacillus thuringiensis BT or they sprinkle the mosquito bits on top. That has worked. Um, there's a product from Arbor, A-B-E-R, A-R-B-E-R. It's in a yellow bottle. I've used that and I've had great success. I didn't have to wait a couple a day or so like you would with the BT trying to set it up and build a population. It was a chemical fix. I did it on all my indoor plants. Done. So there's so many cool ways to do it. But keep in mind, if you're using banana water and all these other waters on your plants, this is probably why you have the nets in the first place. I was going to say, probably some of the solutions that they're giving you are actually making it worse. And, you know, just maybe <laughs> waiting a little bit longer between watering for the topsoil to dry out might actually be the cure <laughs> instead of dumping, yeah, dumping more stuff on top. It just might. And yeah, a couple, I've sprinkled a little bit of mosquito bits themselves on the surface, and that's usually worked just as well. Mm. And so going to ask about another myth that is popping up in my email more and more, and that's electroculture. Oh, God. And until maybe, I don't know, three months ago, it had never crossed uh, anything that I've gotten. And then all of a sudden, in the last few months, I've been getting people pitching stories on electroculture. It's blown up. Or asking my experience with it, and can I comment on it for an interview? And I'm like, I have never used electricity in actually growing a plant, and I don't know why you would. Oh, there's so much to say in so little time. So let's jump into it. For those of you who have seen this on the internet, number one, when those people ask you your your comment, your comment should be, it's dumb and it's wrong. However you want to phrase that, <laughs> you can take it from me, a legitimate plant biologist, scientifically proven it's stupid and it's wrong. Part two is the, the background of it. So on the internet, as of now, someone misguided and foolish will tell you that electroculture is the practice of putting a copper structure around a plant to grow it better and more efficiently. So that could be just copper poles, copper wiring, and you're not putting it necessarily in the soil. You're just sticking it in the soil, but you're, you're making like almost, I would call it like arts and crafts. You're making copper arts and crafts. And what it's supposed to do, Kathy, and this is how you can really debunk something if you learn enough about it, because then you can say, well, no, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. The copper is supposed to, through magnetism, 
and its electroconductivity properties, even though copper is not magnetic, doesn't have magnetic properties. But through those properties, they'll tell you it will attract more energy into the plant and allow the plant to be basically boosted in its production. So people who will usually post these videos, I did one maybe a month or so in the last month or two. She's like, I grew these gourds and they're the biggest gourds I've ever seen. But she also said, I've never grown anything before. So that's number one. You didn't know that courgettes and other squashes grow large, but typically in a grocery store, they just want to give you a small one because most people don't want a giant squash and they don't transport well. So if I'm one person, I don't need a two foot squash like we did back in the 60s and 50s when people had gigantimous families. Part two is she was growing this in a state of the art hoop house. Of course, your plants are big and beautiful. You're growing them in the best conditions. It doesn't matter about the copper. So the true background of electroculture is in the late 1800s, there was a study, I believe, somewhere in Asia where they found, and in various other places where they found that wires that were electrified, copper wires that were electrified running around plants, potentially had some impact on their growth, especially when the wiring was ran in the ground where the roots were. And when I thought about this, I was like, well, if it's electrified wires, it's probably warm. Mm -hmm. And then that's probably the same as like when you get a heating mat and you put it under it. Like it's, it doesn't, but they didn't even take that gobbledygook. They just made something else. So electroculture, you've heard it here. It is not real. (laughs) It is as real as the imaginary friend many of us had when we were children. I know you haven't thought about that imaginary friend in a while. It's just as real as that. (laughs) Good to know. I won't be running any electrical currents into my gardening beds <laughs> or pots. Please do Please do not. Um, and another thing that I always see, and you mentioned some of those five-minute hack videos, is air layering pretty much everything to other things, like, you know, cutting a stem of, say, a tomato plant and then putting a papaya around it and tying it with string. Oh, God. And then the papaya sets roots, um, and then you cut that off and grow that from there. So let's talk about some of those air layering techniques. I have not seen that. That is amazing. (laughs) I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. So when it comes to air layering and grafting, grafting is when I take a, a root stock, so the roots of one plant, and a scion, a growing part of another plant, and I put them together. So like two types of tomatoes. If I want to get like maybe cherry tomatoes on this one vine and beefsteak tomatoes on this other vine, I can make a plant that's almost like Frankenstein to be able to do that. That is that is grafting. Air layering is a technique, whereas I take off some of the bark of the stem to expose some of the cambium, and I allow... Um, some type of soil or media around that. So that way it will be like, oh no, I need to root. It'll root and then I can propagate plants that are larger than what you could typically propagate through typical root cuttings or stem cuttings. So I could get like a fig with a three or four inch stem and I can propagate that four inch around stem, diameter stem, and it could be a five foot long stem. And I can propagate that to get a plant that's already pretty much ready to go in the ground and potentially produce some figs in the next couple of years, right? When you take grafting into consideration, 
you have to make sure the plants are closely enough related for the grafting to work. So it's, it's like when we talk about organ donors in the human world, right? When we talk about blood donors, there there's a matching process that has to happen and an acceptance that your body has to do in order for everything to heal up right and for your body to carry on. So, in, and in the human world, there's medications that can be taken to tell your immune system to like hold off while it's trying to accept this heart or kidney or a lung or eye or whatever. Or, and with blood, we know about the blood types and we know like how that works and how like if you give somebody the wrong blood type who can't take every blood type, then they've, they've been messed up. So with all of that now established, mm-hmm. in the same way in the plant world, I need plants that are related. A papaya, I can't remember what family that's in, but I know tomatoes are in the nightshade family. Yes. So tomatoes would need to be related to other nightshades, potentially other tobaccos, other actual nightshades, anything that's, I think, a belladonna. Um, and the, for those that are actually like edible, that would be an eggplant or a potato or a pepper. Right. But typically I feel like because I have friends that have done this, it's usually combining the the stock of like one tomato that has great roots, but it doesn't do fruit I want to a tomato that has great fruit, but its root stock sucks. And they combine that together or a friend of mine who grows gigantic fruit. um, He'll grow gigantic watermelons, gigantic like pumpkins for like fairs and shows. He'll do that to be able to get the plant set up to do that possibility, but it can't be just two random plants that aren't related, but you would have to look and figure out like, are these in the same family, the same plant family? Are these both aeroids? Are these both in the Araceae? There's three genus, there's three geni that are all Araceae, actually no families that are all Araceae. One is like the Arum family. One is like the actual blueberry family. Like there's a bunch of confusion there, but if you if you know that, then you'll be able to say, well, no, this won't work because those are too far related, unrelated. Yeah, and I just think a lot of it is just, you know, if the if it comes out with the editing, you know, if it flashes back and forth, you know it's wrong. <laughs> so, and so you have to be able to be aware of that because some people will never see it. Some people will look at it and be like, that looks great. And they don't see the editing. They don't see the fake roots that are plastic, obviously. They don't see that. The tomato was apparently sitting out for two weeks outside in the temperatures and magically it never rotted. Like that just didn't happen, you know? Yep. Sometimes a plastic rose is sprung out of the middle. Yeah. It's <laughs> one of those beautifully, dream, beautifully growing or it's a, it's an obvious special effect, like from DreamWorks in the nineties, but nope, it looks real to you because it showed up for five seconds and you're like, that's real. Well, the one thing that makes me feel better about some of this garden myth busting, of course, is people like you combating it, but also the comment section. Like, as soon as you see one of these flim flam type videos, go straight to the comment section, and there's usually somebody trying to straighten it out. Usually, and they are fighting for their lives in the comments. It's like being in a zombie apocalypse. But it's not zombieism; it's just misinformation. And they're trying to be like, hey, everybody, here's the cure right here. We could stop the disease and the zombies are like, nah, smash it on the ground. We don't need this. So please check out the comment sections because especially in your favorite plant hack videos, there's always going to be somebody who says, it didn't work for me. My plants died. Mm-hmm. Or somebody will say fake and they'll explain step by step. You know, here was the edit. Here was that. So 
you know, take it all with a grain of salt. So we could go on and on because there are so many garden myths and misinformation out there. But in wrapping up, Derek, first I wanted to let you share with listeners how they can follow you and find out more and how they can support your work. So, of course, you can email me and you can find that on my Instagram. Um, my Instagram is the chocolate botanist. You can go to my website, thechocolatebotanist.com. And I'm the chocolate botanist on pretty every much platform except for Twitter. I know it goes by a different name now, but I will never call it that name. It's like when they when they rename plants and it's like now Rosemary is Salvia Rosemarinus instead of Rosemarinus Officionale. It's like, oh, or Officionalis. I don't remember what the specific epithet was, but either way, I'm never going to call a snake pack a Dracaena. I'm going to call it a Sansevieria, and I'm not going <laughs> to call Twitter X. I'm just going to call it Twitter. So I'm crazy botanist on Twitter, but I'm on all platforms as the chocolate botanist. Again, if you go to my website, thechocolatebotanist.com, you can hit me up for all of your needs. Great. And so how about a final thought, Derek, about maybe a new gardener who's looking to source legitimate garden information? Where should they be getting that from? So you are picture it, Sicily, 1932. You are a new gardener into the world with a plant and a dream. And all you want to do is to grow some lettuce and some kale and potentially a couple of sunflowers. And you're like, where do I go? The first thing you do is if you are in these United States, you have what's called the Cooperative Extension Office. And I talk about it often. They do not cut me a check. They don't pay me any attention, much less anything else. <laughs> so if you go to the Cooperative Extension Office and you say to them, there's one in every county in every state, and you say, hey, I am looking to grow plants and I'm trying to figure out what's up. That they can help you out. If you don't go in person, we have the internet. You can search up Cooperative Extension in your county and find information that is relevant to your county, to your zone, to your area. So again, you won't look to a person in California and you are in Philadelphia and you're like, why can't I grow the oranges that they're growing? Uh, <laughs> why can't I get the beautiful things in Florida when I'm here in Alaska? Why won't that work? So they will give you that information. There are a plethora of great legitimate plant pages on Instagram, and I could name them out, but I, I'm fear if I start naming some, I'm going to forget others. And then people are going to be like, why didn't you name me? So if you are looking at a page and you're like, hmm, is this legitimate? Generally, I follow legitimate pages. So if we see that we're mutuals, we're good. Um, and then finally, learn what you need to learn. Growing plants is a, is a journey where not only are you learning about the plants that you are caring for, right? But you're also having the opportunity to learn about yourself. I have been able to adjust my workflow with plants and, and learn about myself with plants and learn what works for me with plants over this last, geez, since I was maybe really gardening, since I was like, 15, like I've done a lot of plant stuff, but really actually gardening and getting a different, decent results since I was like 15, 16. So, and I'm 33 now. So like half of my life, I have had to really work towards taking care of these plants and being successful. Touched a lot of plants and a lot of stuff forever, but actually having a, a, a plant here growing, a seed germinating, I've learned a lot. And when even, and I look back and I remember where I've come from and I've learned a lot. So learn about yourself and learn about the plants. 
Follow legitimate YouTube sources and learn how to grow these plants and how to care for these plants. Look for plant people who are in your areas. They don't have to be influencers, but reach out to your Facebook groups and see if you can find people who you can grow with, who you can share information and seeds and pots and soil with. So that way you can grow and cultivate your own peace and your own factualness together. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Derek. Thank you. Monkey Balls Plant Profile Gumphocarpus physocarpus is a member of the milkweed family and has many common names, including hairy balls, giant swan plant, goose plant, family jewels, Oscar, monkey balls, and balloon plant. Asclepius physocarpa is its former botanical name. It is native to South America and grown as an annual in our region. It is hardy to USDA zones 9 to 11. It prefers full sun and moderate moisture. It can grow to 4 to 6 feet high. The flowers are not very dramatic, but the seed pods are showstoppers. Like other milkweeds, it supports monarch caterpillars and butterflies, as well as other pollinators. It is also deer resistant. You can start seeds indoors a few weeks before the last expected frost date in spring and then transplant them outdoors. The plant is a favorite for flower arrangements. The seed pods dry nicely and it makes a terrific conversation starter in the landscape or on the kitchen table. Monkey balls, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, before I get into that, I want to thank our latest listener supporter, and that's Hillary Robertson Collado. Thank you, Hillary, for being a supporter of the Garden DC podcast. And now I want to share a fun success story from our community garden, and that's all about the Ferrari green bean. I got a pack of these green beans from Botanical Interest and planted these seeds in mid-July and harvested my first green beans from those plants 40 days later, almost to the day of planting. And on the pack, it reports 63 days from seed to bean. So I just think that is an incredible uh, success to have beans already 40 days later. And they are slender, beautiful, tender green beans. I highly recommend them. Let's talk about some upcoming events in the local gardening world. And that includes on Sunday, September 10th, the DC State Fair, which is going to be held at Franklin Park in downtown Washington, DC. I will be there giving a flower arranging demonstration and that is free and open to all to attend. And that's at the dcstatefair.org for the schedule and more details about that. And then on September 12th through 15th is the Urban Tree Summit 2023. That takes place online and 
a few days of in-person tree tours as well as part of that conference. That is put on by Montgomery Parks and Casey Trees. You can find out more about that schedule and register for it at caseytrees.org. And then I'm giving a talk locally if you're in the Washington, D.C. area for the Hyattsville Horticultural Society, and that's on Saturday, September 16th at 10 a.m. The talk will be based on my new book, Ground Cover Revolution, and that is taking place at my dead aunt's books. Copies of the book will be available for purchase, and I'll be signing them there, and you can find out more about that event at HyattsvilleHorticulture.org. Finally, I wanted to let you know that the August issue of Washington Gardener Magazine has been posted and sent to out to our subscribers. You can go to our website, washingtongardener.blogspot.com to see a digital version of the magazine posted there. Inside it, we have a cover story on how to grow delicious carrots, even in containers. Um, we have a story on getting rid of the spotted lanternfly, meeting the founder of Karis Lavender Fields, a story on moisture-loving native plants, and a few other features you won't want to miss, including uh, preserving the history at Dumbarton House, not to be confused with Dumbarton Oaks, and much more in that issue. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternatives to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, 
Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is the last word on bears and blueberries by Christy Page at Food Gardening Network. I love blueberries. Not only are they full of antioxidants, they're just delicious. I like them in yogurt, cereal, just plain, and most definitely in baking. I decided that it made a lot of sense to get my own blueberry bushes so that I could have fresh, wonderful blueberries all summer long. I visited my local nursery and purchased early and late blooming varieties that were already fairly well established. I was so excited. I'm lucky that we have an entire guide on blueberries. I read every article to make sure I was prepared. I knew where I wanted to plant them, had tested and prepared my soil, and made sure that my garden hose reached the area just in case of a dry spell. With a little muscle help from my husband, my blueberry bushes were planted. That summer, I watched as the pollinators floated from bush to bush, so happy with the thought of all the great recipes I would try. The small buds started, and I was in full-on planning mode. I'm envisioning buckets and buckets of blueberries. Well, maybe not in the first year, but definitely in the years to come. I revisited the blueberry guide on foodgardening.com to make sure there were no signs of pests or diseases. There were several recipes in the guide that looked super yummy, and I couldn't wait to try them including one for blueberry pie fudge that looks so easy to do, sounds delicious, and is perfect for a summer get-together. My first berry ripened, and I couldn't contain my excitement. It was so delicious and sweet. Now I'm starting to get just a teensy bit impatient. I just needed one cup. Then I would be on my way to blueberry fudge or muffins or so many other wonderful treats. The next morning, I'm sitting, having my coffee and gazing out the window, I looked over to see my wonderful blueberry bushes, and something was blocking my view. I paused for a moment, completely stunned, and then I just had to gasp. It was a bear. A very large bear was having my blueberries for his morning breakfast. Now let me tell you, my very first instinct was to run out there and protect my blueberries. After a moment, though, I came to my senses. That bear was a lot bigger than I am. So instead... I watched him continue to munch on my morning treats. Well, the rest of that summer, and well, let's face it, every summer since, I'm lucky if I get a handful of blueberries, but I have a very happy bear who knows where to look for his breakfast treats, and since he's bigger than me, I let him have them. (laughs) This was the last word on bears and blueberries with Christy Page at foodgardening.com. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Thank you.
You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.